0: Mormonism 101 for Teens is a valuable resource for anyone wanting a simplified view of the Mormon religion from a Christian perspective. Mormonism 101 for Teens is available at your favorite Christian bookstore or at MRM.org. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism.
1: Our thanks to Adams Road Band for that musical introduction. Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry, and with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We've been reminiscing over some of the sites that we saw during the summer of 2022 when Eric, myself, and a friend of ours, Trevor Wolfe, visited Nauvoo, Illinois, Kirtland, Ohio, and Palmyra, New York. And as I've mentioned in previous shows, the purpose of visiting these sites was to hear for ourselves what various tour guides were saying about these very important places in Mormon history. Yesterday, we started talking about our visit to the Kirtland Temple, how we had a young guide by the name of Braden, who, by the way, was not a member of the LDS Church— nor was he a member of the community of Christ that happens to own the Kirtland Temple in Kirtland, Ohio. When we were up in the third floor of the Kirtland Temple, he had mentioned how this is where Joseph Smith had a a vision of his dead brother Alvin, who appeared to him, and this is where we get section 137 in the Doctrine and Covenants. But he also told us another story that I found to be just fascinating— I did not know about this. I knew about the mummies that he mentioned, but I did not know the story that he told about how the four mummies that members of the LDS Church collectively put their money together and purchased these four mummies off of a man by the name of Michael Chandler in July of 1835. I was aware of that story because from those mummies we had the papyrus that eventually gives us what's known as the Book of Abraham. Joseph Smith claimed that the book of Abraham was a translation of some ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt. The writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt called the book of Abraham written by his own hand upon papyrus. Now, there's no truth to that statement. You have to take it by faith. And, of course, faithful Latter-day Saints do believe this book of Abraham to be a part of their scripture. But it comes from some Egyptian papyri that Joseph Smith had with these mummies. Now, the interesting story that this tour guide told us was how, for a time, these four mummies were being stored on the third level of the Kirtland Temple. Now, this is before it was dedicated. Joseph Smith gets these mummies in 1835, but at some point they find their way up to the third floor of the Kirtland Temple. And what did this tour guide tell us about these four mummies? What were they doing in front of these mummies on
2: occasion? Eating dinner.
1: I couldn't believe that when he said it. I was just floored. Apparently they would have a meal up on the third floor. I don't know how often they did this. But our tour guide told us that these mummies were there, and you're looking at these mummies while you're eating dinner. How would you like to sit there eating your fried chicken and mashed potatoes looking at a corpse in front of you? I don't think that would be very appetizing for me. It it caught me off guard. I was a little bit shocked by that story even though I was well aware that Joseph Smith did have in his possession these four mummies that were purchased from Michael Chandler back in July of 1835. Now, we asked him about facsimile one. Facsimile one is just across the page from that introduction that I just read, that Joseph Smith claimed that they were the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt. Across the page from there, we find facsimile one, where you have this picture of a person looking like they have are holding a knife over another person who's laying on his back with his arms up, laying on a lion-headed couch. Now, Joseph Smith is going to tell us that, that this figure is the idolatrous Priest of Elkanah, I'm not sure exactly how they pronounce that, attempting to offer up Abraham as a sacrifice. Now, of course, his entire explanation of facsimile one is not verified by qualified Egyptologists. Whereas in days past, members of the LDS church were told that this is a direct translation. From this papyrus that Joseph Smith had, now the church is telling us that it was not a traditional translation or a conventional translation. It was more spiritual, which, of course, gives Joseph Smith the license to say whatever he wants. And if you believe he's a prophet, you're going to believe what he's telling you, even though what he's saying is not true, according to history. Our tour guide mentioned that he was not familiar with that facsimile. If you're a Latter-day Saint and you're not familiar with that facsimile, I would encourage you to look at it very closely and then find out what qualified Egyptologists happen to say about that facsimile. I think you're going to be very surprised when you look at a comparison between what an Egyptologist says about it and what the LDS Church is saying about it at this time. Now, there was another important thing that took place in the Kirtland Temple and this can be found in section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The introduction to section 110 says, Visions manifested to Joseph Smith the prophet and Oliver Cowdery in the temple at Kirtland, Ohio, April 3rd, 1836. Now, why is this important? Well. First of all, let me tell you that now we have moved from the top floor and now we are down on the bottom floor of the Kirtland Temple. And this is where Section 110 apparently took place. And it was a vision that Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith claimed they had on April 3rd, 1836. Now this is a week after the Kirtland Temple was dedicated. But what does Joseph Smith say in verses 1 through 4 of section 110, Eric?
2: The veil was taken from our minds, and the eyes of our understanding were opened. We saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before us, and under his feet was a paved work of pure gold and color like amber. His eyes were as a flame of fire, the hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters, even the voice of Jehovah, saying, I am the first and the last, I am he who liveth, I am he who was slain, I am your advocate with the Father." Now.
1: What happens in this particular case is you have Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery having this vision. Nobody else sees this. What sometimes makes you wonder, is Oliver Cowdery in on the ruse? Because Oliver Cowdery seems to support Joseph Smith in a lot of these stories that he tells. Oliver Cowdery was related to Joseph Smith. He was a cousin. And it just makes me wonder. I'm just throwing it out there. But no one else apparently sees this. There was a curtain that was drawn in the Kirtland Temple around this area where Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are supposed to be. And when it talks about them seeing the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit, we're assuming that he's standing on this flat piece of wood that was on each side of the pulpit. There were two pulpits on this particular floor one on one side of the room and another pulpit on the other side of the room. And so when he says, we saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit, I'm assuming this is where he was standing. But I want you to notice what Joseph Smith does here. He talks about, under his feet was a paved work of pure gold. Do these phrases sound a little bit familiar to you, if you're familiar at all with the book of Revelation, like Revelation twenty-one
2: twenty-one. And I would say that with verse 3. I mean, if he goes on, His eyes were as a flame of fire. The hair of his head was white like pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of rushing at great waters. You just go to Revelation 1, uh, especially Revelation 1, but also chapter 19 as well. Those are phrases found in that book. And we
1: don't find it to be uncommon for Joseph Smith to take these phrases from the Bible and put them in a present-day type of context. I would think that if you really believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet, by him citing these things that he sees and the parallels between what he allegedly is seeing and what the Bible says, it might bolster your faith in Joseph Smith's claim to be a prophet. He's using this phraseology, I think— to try to give the impression that he really is duplicating or experiencing things of a biblical nature. And if you were to have doubts about Joseph Smith's claims, maybe that would help you see that he is, in fact, called of God as a Latter-day prophet. But we would call that plagiarism. But, of course, when you bring this up to a Latter-day saint, they look at it more as a proof that this shows that Joseph Smith was a prophet. Let me give you an example. For instance, when Joseph Smith cites the Apostle Paul in the Book of Mormon in a time period long before the Apostle Paul ever lived, I bring this up to a Latter day Saint and I get an answer something like, Well, doesn't that show it's inspired? Because it's saying the same things that Paul said later on, and you believe what Paul said was inspired, don't you? You see how they're thinking. They don't think like we would. I would like to think that we are thinking critically. But no, that looks like plagiarism to us, especially when you look at all the many times that he does this. But it tends to show us that Smith is merely cribbing these phrases from the Bible and using them in a present-day
2: situation. Well, let's just be honest. He does that in the Book of Mormon. He does that in the Doctrine of Covenants. He's always cribbing phrases that make it sound more spiritual. I think you're right on that, Bill. How many of his listeners might say, I'm not quite sure, but boy, the language sounds very familiar. And
1: if you are not very familiar with what the Bible has to say, that might make you think, wow, this sounds very spiritual, even biblical. Have you ever wondered why in the Book of Mormon you have ancient Indians talking in King James English? Why in the world would someone like a Moroni or a Nephi, living hundreds and hundreds of years ago, be talking like they're living during the 1600s? That just doesn't make sense. But yet you see that style of language used throughout the Book of Mormon. Not only the Book of Mormon, but why does God speak in the 1800s in King James English? why would he do that? That wouldn't seem to make any sense. That language was probably very well understood during the 1600s, but it was not a language or a phraseology that we would use in modern times. But yet we still see God speaking in that language. But I've always found it very suspicious that you would have ancient American Indians talking in King James English, writing in King James English. That certainly is an anachronism.
0: As with most Christian organizations, Mormonism Research Ministry depends on the generous financial support of friends like you. If you like what we do and how we do it, would you consider helping MRM meet its financial obligations? Merely go to our website, MRM.org. At the right, you'll see a donate button. Click there and follow the instructions. MRM is a Christian nonprofit 501c3 organization and your gifts are tax deductible. Not only that, they are greatly appreciated. Thank you for your support of this ministry.